This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. On the Becoming Educated podcast today is Adam Riches. Adam is a full-time English teacher in the UK. He is a senior leader for teaching and learning and a specialist leader in education. Adam contributes writing to Teach Secondary, Teach Primary, Sec Ed and TES. Adam is also the author of the brilliant Teach Smarter, Efficient and Effective Strategies for Early Career Teachers, which we're going to unpick a little bit with Adam today. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. No, certainly the pleasure is all mine. So just to, to kick us off, could you please give us a, a, a little whistle-stop tour of, of you and your career to date, please? Yeah, um, I, I guess I've been teaching 10, 11 years now. Um, started off at Humble Beginnings, I suppose, English teacher. Um, lots of different responsibilities through English, Key Stage 3, Key Stage 5, English language. Um, and then after my first school, I moved to a slightly more challenging school, you could say, um, pretty high area of social deprivation. Um, I went there as a lead teacher in English um, to help the head of department set up, uh, get everything back on track, um, special measures at the time. Um, and I've, I've been there three, four years now, um, and I've really enjoyed it. And um, the school's turned around completely during that time. Um, it's been really interesting to see um, that kind of journey from special measures up to good without standard leadership. So um, it's been a really interesting kind of like learning journey for me as well as um, for the kids, I think. Certainly, and it's great to to see hear about the the school turning around and moving from English teacher right up through to to senior leadership. So, as I said in the the introduction, we're going to talk a little bit about your wonderful book, Teach Smarter. Can you share with us why you decided to write it? Yeah, definitely. So. Um, the, the book really wasn't a, a planned exercise. It was something that's come about from uh, article writing. And it, it's a bit frustrating with articles because you write an article and it, it's quite fluid. So um, you write something, somebody reads it, says they like it or don't like it. And then the next week, there are more articles that are written and very quickly good ideas become diluted. And obviously, um, on the other hand, bad ideas very quickly leave. But the concept of writing an article is much less impactful than a book. And I just wanted something a little bit more tangible because something that I'm really, really keen on is just inspiring change around certain elements of teaching. Um, and I know that sounds really cliched, but um, I think there's this traditional sense that the harder you work, the more time you put in, the better teacher you're going to be. And actually something that I've Try to try, kind of try to do with Teach Smarter is highlight to people that the workload is something that needs to be reduced um, and, and that archaic practice around all right well I've stayed until seven o'clock tonight it doesn't necessarily mean that you, you, you've done anything more than if you'd have just done it more efficiently and more effectively in the first place and I think um, the other thing I was hoping to achieve by writing it was to highlight the importance of reflection throughout your career. Um, I know during ITT and NQT, uh, you, you know, you're really encouraged to reflect on your practice and then you kind of find yourself in those kind of like um, hinty years where you just sort of float um, year three, four, five, six, and suddenly you're thinking, hold on a second, like, am I doing what I should be doing? Um, and you've not had the opportunity to reflect. And in a weird way, um, although it's aimed at early career teachers, it doesn't necessarily just mean ITT and NQT. Um, I kind of wrote it to 
help those who are a little bit lost and thinking, right, I do want to get better, but maybe I'm not too sure. I don't have the support um, to, to know how. No, certainly, I think that goes across across a lot of stages in the career. Because I think we all want to try and find ways to to reduce the workload. Because because we know fine well that the workload at times it could never end. So um, we're going to spend the rest of the interview kind of trying picking through some of the themes that I've picked out from from reading it. And can we start off with with sharing us know what does it actually mean to to teach smart? Well, the concept comes about from well the idea that you don't have to do more to be better. So it's about making sure that your practice is effective um, and efficient. And there are thousands of ways, obviously, that you can go about doing that. But to just to condense it into a kind of like quick fire guide, I thought was really important. And that sense of reflectiveness, I always think, leads to the effectiveness. So again, that sounds like a little coined phrase, really. But uh, reflective um, practice makes you more effective in your practice and the more opportunity you have to, to look over what you're doing and to critique it not, not criticize but to critique it um, builds that sense of self-efficacy and uh, the more responsibility we take as individuals for our own development uh, the more empowered we become and quite often uh, we're very busy as teachers uh, you can't you can't digest complex things when you are busy as, as a lot of us are so the idea was that I, I tried to write it in a sense uh, that put across that just to teach smart doesn't mean to teach more uh, in a more complicated way. In fact, it's the opposite. It's, it's to teach in a more simple way, um, in a more streamlined way. Um, and it just make just just hoping that teaching smarter means making positive changes to your teaching to ensure that you are constantly reflecting, but also constantly improving yourself um, through that kind of sense of self worth. Certainly, I like what you said at the beginning there of of you don't have to do more to be better and and it certainly comes across in, in what you write in the book and the strategies strategies that you give and um, you then go on to to recommend three main ideas that make up the basics of learning and you call them your, your smart theories so what are these smart theories well uh, as with anything around educational research there's so much white noise that there's there's so much that you can read um that, that will develop your practice but quite often um those theories are kind of surrounded by fluff and that fluff creates that kind of sense of confusion like application and dilution you, you read about something um you think about applying it you look at how somebody else applies it and by the time you actually apply it yourself it's quite heavily diluted and i just think if you strip it back there are three main theorists or three main ideas really that you can work from to ensure that your practice remains as streamlined as possible. Um, Rosenstein's principles of instructions, I think, um, are one of the backbones to any, any good classroom. And by that, I mean, they're the kind of like, what are the things that we can be doing to ensure that our, our teaching is effective? Um, linked with that, the, the concept of desirable difficulty um, is, is something that I think is key as well. Um, on the one hand, where we have the, the actual practice or the teaching practice, um, we have to also consider the engagement of the students. It's all good and well teaching a phenomenal lesson, but if you've pitched it completely wrong, then uh, all the best pedagogy in the world is going to go amiss. Um, and then equally linked to that concept of engagement um, through kind of thinking is cognitive load theory. Um, obviously, it's not something new, but it's something that I think if you understand um, it can quite often answer a lot of questions you have about why a class isn't maybe learning quite as effectively as they can. So it's that combination of those three approaches, I think, um, kind of gives you that basis to ensure that you're theory-led, but at the same time, you're, you're not theory-confined, um, and it just it allows you to reflect upon your own practice. And quite often, um, 
make some pretty impactful changes very, very quickly. Definitely. I like that idea of being theory-led, but not theory-confined. And I like how you distilled that down and you recognise there is a lot of, as you say, white noise in terms of educational research. And I'd highly recommend going on and reading that three and, and using that as a lens to, to reflect on your practice, like you've said about reflection already. What I found most interesting in the book was this uh, idea of getting rid of your desk. Obviously, under, under current restrictions with, with where we are just now in the current climate, maybe it's a bit harder. But under normal circumstances, why should a teacher get rid of their desk? It's um, like you say, at, at the moment um, in the climate that we're in, obviously the book was written um, pre anything COVID and a restriction on our movement is, is quite common at the moment. But in, in, let's say, a normal classroom, I think a desk can become an anchor and almost a, like a weight around your ankle if you're not careful. Um, they tempt poor teaching practice with regard to your time uh, and with regard to your efficiency. Um, if you've got a desk at the front of the classroom, quite often um, you're drawn towards it. And um, if the student's working quite quickly, it becomes habit to sit down at the desk. Yet yeah, maybe you might not send an email to start with, but oh, just quickly check the emails, get on the emails, just do that. And then suddenly you're thinking three minutes and I've not maybe been as attentive as I could have been. Um, yeah, the class have been compliant but you're not maybe teaching as well as you potentially could. Um, I just think that desks quite often um, draw the wrong habits out of people. And um, I worked with a very good teacher, um, well, I say sort of mentor, I suppose. Um, Roy Watson Davies is an absolutely brilliant bloke. When I was uh, first started teaching and he used to just stand at the back of the room uh, and some days he'd move the desk to different places in the room. And that concept of um, making that desk a tangible uh, item as opposed to something that's constantly in the same place was was really interesting to me but I think by removing a disc, desk completely you give yourself more space you give yourself more versatility with regard to your placement at the front of the room um, and you give yourself uh, a, a lot more kind of like uh, freedom of movement but also it gives you that additional kind of like uh, let's say encouragement to move around the classroom and um, a, a lot of the concepts that I discuss in the book uh, are based around the idea that if you're moving around the classroom you're spending your time efficiently um, as opposed to maybe spending it at the front where you're just watching if you're passive and watching you're not maybe making the best use of your time um, and I know some people argue that uh, there, are, there are times in which you need to be still to ensure that students are able to focus. Um, and I don't disagree with that, but I think standing and doing that gives you more presence anyway. Um, and I just genuinely do think a desk is a massive waste of space in a room. Certainly, as a, as a teacher of physical education who doesn't have a desk, I would totally, totally agree. And I think what we benefit from as physical educators is that we are always and amongst the pupils, giving them the feedback and correcting their techniques. And I imagine that idea would be the same for, for you as an English teacher and teachers and other subjects. Yeah, that. and it's that other concept, isn't it? It's, I don't have my own classroom as such. So what happens is over the period of a day, you accumulate everybody else's rubbish. And by the end of the day, you've got piles and piles of handouts or lined paper or some random pens or whatever. 
And then it just seems insane that you then clear all that away and then the next day that mess comes back and nobody's actually maybe even used the desk and it just ends up being a bit of a dumping ground. And, and cognitively, uh, even just that mess and that disorganisation says a lot to a student when they come in the room. You're trying to get them in quietly, get them um, focused and get them working. And they walk in and see a massive pile of old handouts and papers from geography or some other subject, wherever, and you've suddenly got yourself the wrong impression from the outset. Um, so yeah, I just think in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways, a desk brings nothing, and it's one of those Victorian concepts that a teacher has a desk, the students face that desk, um, and that's how the teaching happens. And I just think sometimes you, you need to question these things. If you like a desk, amazing, brilliant, you keep your desk. But maybe if you don't use your desk, um, see if you can experiment with taking it out or moving it around or putting it somewhere different. If I like that idea of, of making sure if, if your desk is a, is a mess area, that really does affect the, the children and their perceptions. And, and I like how you link that to, to having a desk and, and sometimes just not having it avoids that. And definitely, I like that. So we're now going to go move on to, to kind of more of more ideas of the, of the art and the, of, of teaching here. And, and you, you give a wonderful chapter on, on planning talk. Um, talking or oracy, as we call it, is something that, that is often forgotten in, in classrooms. But how important is it then to, to plan for talking into our, in our lessons? I think um, talk is one of those things that we, we plan to do, but we don't necessarily plan the task in a, a huge amount of detail. So um, teachers quite often say, OK, we're going to have a talk phase at this particular point. Um, but there's not a huge amount of consideration about how that talk phase um, might, might look. Uh, quite often we champion writing. Um, I suppose the legacy of, of, of the old Ofsted inspections where we see kind of like progress in books through writing, um, we kind of champion that concept of ensuring that we've, we've got really stern outcomes around writing. And I think it's equally as important to do that around talk. Um, and, and there's a number of ways, of, of course, which you can do it. But um, ensuring that you've planned your talk effectively just, again, um, means that the students are able to engage with those activities significantly better. Um, the idea of building routine around talk also is really important. So um, using talk frames, using different stimulus for, for talk and, and guiding students and teaching students how to talk is just as important, I think, as writing. Translatability between speaking and writing also um, is, is quite obvious. We, we speak or we spoke before we wrote um, as, as human beings. And I think as a, as a cognitive process, quite often having the opportunity to talk before you write gives a significant amount of additional confidence. But when it comes to questioning and things like that also, um, the opportunity to talk before uh, whole class questioning takes place significantly reduces the, the opt out with regard to the questioning. And, and actually um, it's quite a motivational thing once you build that culture of talk in your classroom. Um, for students to actually engage with the ideas that maybe they would have been a little bit more afraid to to begin with. Um, but, but even now, during, during these times with, with COVID, uh, effectively planned talk, again, can be very, very um, kind of successful, even without the students looking at one another. Well, I, I definitely, definitely good advice in, in the idea of giving them, them talking frames and, and teaching them how to talk, because we spend a lot of time teaching them how to write and how to answer questions, but teaching them how to talk in, in, the, in the language and the way you want them to talk in the classroom is beneficial, I'd imagine. Yeah, and, and it's those expectations. So something as simple as ensuring one of your routines in the classroom is students always respond in full sentences. 
the likeliness of them responding in a full sentence than in the written answer is significantly higher, but also the process in which their brain goes through figuring out how they respond is, is, is um, kind of equally as important as well. So it's just building those high expectations around talk as you would around writing. We correct grammar, we correct spelling. So why shouldn't we kind of promote and, and correct um, effective speech? Don't get me wrong, like dialect and accent, none of those things, I, I, don't, I don't believe any of those should be in, in, in any way corrected. But I'm talking in terms of like form and of speech and ensuring we're using full sentences, um, well-articulated responses with regard to argument and things like that as well. They're not things that naturally a student's going to pick up. And um, in my demographic, like I said, we, we, we've got high social, we're in a high, high social deprivation area. Uh, the cultural capital of those individual students is relatively low. But more importantly, with regard to talk, their social capital is, is particularly low as well. Um, and, and obviously, a lot of them don't have those exposures at home uh, where they have the interactions that allow them to be able to speak in the way um, that say, let's say a normal child might be able to. So it's about giving them the opportunity to then experience these things so that when they do go into the wider world, I've not just taught them how to answer question two, paper one on English language. I've also taught them how to articulate their response in a way in which shows that they understand um, or can infer a certain type of meaning from something. Certainly, and that is obviously of tremendous value when they go into the world of work and they have job interviews and they interact with people from different social demographics as they as they go on and hopefully be successful in life. So, so it's, it's a great strategy. So thank you. Um, you mentioned a little bit about routines there, and, and I love this quote in your, in, that I've taken from, from the book, Adam, and it's getting your ex expectations right is one of the most important things about teaching. If you truly want to simplify your life and reduce your workload, teaching your students good habits and getting your classroom environment right is key. So what ex expectations should we set and how do we go about teaching our expectations and reinforcing them throughout the year? Yeah, the, and, and that, the, you, you're just hitting the nail on the head, Rich. It's the teaching of the expectations that's, that's really important from the outset. Um, and I, quite often with uh, ITT, um, and some NQTs, I suppose, you see they've got the expectations up on the slide at the start of the year. And, and that's one approach. And, and that can work. It's very explicit. Um, but the issue is, I always think you need to be able to verbalise your expectations simply, because if you can't verbalise them simply, then a student's not going to be able to understand them clearly um, and, and easily. And if you can't understand it, uh, an expectation easily then the likeliness is they're not going to be able to meet that expectation. If they have to think about the expectation too much, the likeliness is it's too complicated and they're not going to follow it um, as, as much as they may if it's easier to digest. Um, the, the other thing with, with, with expectations is, is just that age old being fair and consistent. So simple, fair and consistent um, are all factors which, which we need to consider. Um, and again, it's not rocket science, but it just builds that trust in a relationship. And that's the thing that gets to the longevity or the sustainability around expectation is that kind of relationship that you build and the trust that you build with your students. So, um, you know, I, I work particularly well with quite naughty boys, but at the same time, I can't just walk into a school that I've never been in before and say to a class of naughty boys, okay, right lads, um, sit yourselves down and get on some work. It's not going to work because I've not built the relationship with those students. And I think sometimes as early career teachers, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to be able to crack certain classes or crack certain students. But actually, 
you don't realize that it's not a matter of just being able to walk into any classroom and just apply some blanket behavior technique or expectation approach. It's about building those relationships and building that trust. And something that I've found over the years has been hugely, hugely beneficial with regard to expectation is just pure transparency, like making sure the kids 100% know why you're asking them to do something and why your expectation is as high as it is. Because to them, they say, well, why do I need to underline the date? It's not about underlining the date. It's about showing a pride in your presentation to ensure that actually, maybe when you fill in a form when you're older, you don't think, oh, I can't bother. I'm just going to smudge this and make it look rubbish. It's it's just about that transparency with, yeah, it is underlining, and yeah, it is something that isn't necessarily going to hugely build or get you an exam result. But what it does do is it shows shows the right things. And it's similar with handwriting. And um, people say, oh, how do you get the lads to get improve their handwriting i say it simply if i say i'm a bank manager and i'm going to give you a load of money i'm going to give you a loan but i can't read your form i'm not going to give you any lo- uh, any money at all because i can't read your form it's about just making sure that they clearly understand i'm not just nagging them to improve their handwriting and through my high expectations in inverted commas but actually the transparency and saying that in real life it's important to do this because and it's, it's just linking that context isn't it it's, it's really important and around that that just builds those expectations, um, they, they see them more as kind of things to aspire to as opposed to you constantly nagging. See, I like that, things to aspire to there. And I like how you, you mentioned a lot the, the, the importance of building relationships and doing that through pure t- transparency. And I really liked your, your mantra, three-year, that your expectations need to be simple, fair, and consistent. Mm. So... What I found incredibly fascinating in, in, in the book, especially as you're like you're an English teacher, is that you wrote that you have not spent one minute in the last term marking outside of lessons. Can you share with, with the listeners, how have you done that and what strategies do you use? That's literally like my, my uh, previous principal, that would have been her worst nightmare if she'd have heard that soundbite. Uh, and then that had got out. But um, the the not marking in the lesson, uh, sorry, not marking outside of the lessons is something that's uh, been my bread and butter for quite a lot of years now. So basically, when I started teaching, I figured that I really disliked spending hours looking at books and then doing loads of stuff in the books. And then the kids going, "All right, what mark did I get?" And you just think, "Hold on, I've spent hours looking at this, and all you want to know is what mark you've got, and it's not even a marked assessment or whatever." So. Um, one of the big things I was trying to get my head around for a lot of years is is how I can not mark as much outside of lessons. And, and over a period of years, working with a number of different people, implemented lots of different types of approach. Um, and, and one that kind of has come out and one that I've written about for a lot of years now is the concept of live marking. And to use uh, a phrase which you uh, uh, used earlier, it's, it's about being in and amongst the students while they're working. So my my uh, my approach very simply is that circulate, check and react constantly while I'm teaching. So you're, you're walking down the rows, you're walking in between the rows, you're reading over the student's shoulder and you're building that culture and that routine of them knowing that they're going to be getting consistent feedback drip fed to them as opposed to a chunk of feedback at the end followed by um, some directed feedback time or directed work improvement time, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and what they do is they respond to the feedback there and then as you're giving it. And I just think all the research suggests the best time to respond to feedback is instantly. If you if you look at any kind of sports coaching or um, if you look at any kind of a mentor and outside of education, quite often the feedback uh, is acted upon straight away. 
Um, and, and I think that if we do this in the classroom, it allows the students to not only keep themselves in the same mindset and improve in that kind of instant, it also ensures that they're still attached to that improvement and they can make the improvement so that if they are in that situation again, they can build that self-efficacy a little bit more easily as well. Um, I just don't like the idea of, of looking at a book outside a lesson when I don't have a student there to be able to instantly say, oh, you can just improve that. Um, I know there was the, the fad of verbal feedback stampers um, and something I'll do to avoid any kind of confusion or misconception around uh, what I do. It, it's not using a verbal feedback stamp or anything like that. It's um, ensuring that you're adding a little bit of feedback into the books of a, with a different kind of pen, like a green pen. I often, quite, I often use a question. Um, it might even just be a, a simple word like why or what or how, um, and that will help them to expand. Or it might be something more specific around kind of like a, a misconception or an error that has come about. But what that does is it, it doesn't just save your workload and time. It saves your mind as well. So outside of the lesson, you can focus on ensuring that those uh, kind of activities that you're doing and the lessons that you are teaching are top notch as opposed to spending hours marking, rocking into the classroom, absolutely wrecked and then trying to teach a lesson and it not being as good as it potentially could have been because you're so fatigued from the marking what you're doing is you're, you're making your, uh, your your practice more effective and more efficient simply by making sure that you're using your time wisely and I don't know what else I'd be doing in the classroom if I wasn't walking around marking because I'd just get bored um, while they're working quietly and, and I know uh, the, the other side of the argument of course is well in English they do extended writing but it doesn't need to just be in extended writing you can circulate quite easily um, throughout a shorter task um, and the other advantage is you keep your step count up don't you you certainly do and I like what you said there about, about saving your mind and then allowing your lessons to be top notch because essentially that is what when the children are with you the children aren't with you when, you, when you're at home and, and like you said there's, <laughs> there's nothing more mind numbing than sitting at home reading all these books to then go into the classroom and for the children to do nothing with it where it's more powerful and impactful as you said to be in amongst the children, giving them the what, how, whys, and, and asking them to, and correcting them right there and then, because it's going to have a bigger impact, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, and obviously, there are examples and times where that approach doesn't necessarily work. So when, when, when you're doing an unit assessment, for example, yeah, you're going to have to mark those assessments outside of the lesson. You can't do that while they're doing the work. But I'm talking about classwork, book work. Uh, they're the kind of things that I don't think necessarily we need to be marking outside of the classroom. Um, and strangely, it was something that I introduced at my school or started introducing at my school when I first arrived uh, four years ago, I said. And it's funny because everyone looked at me like I was absolutely mad. And then as people started integrating it into their practice, one of the biggest things that is missing now in terms of uh, COVID uh, and, and movement around classrooms is the fact that teachers aren't able to live mark. And um, we've, we've tried to reduce workload at school as much as we possibly can for people um, over the years that have been there. And it's really interesting that one of the biggest factors increasing workload now is having to look at books outside of the lesson because you can't look at them in the lesson. Um, and people have kind of really quite appreciated how much time that did previously save them. Certainly, and, and we definitely don't want to be marking books late at night because we want to be the best for our, for our loved ones. What's the point in, in sitting at the kitchen table marking books when yeah, absolutely. You know, you've, got, you've got wonderful partners and, and children around? So thank yes, you. I don't think my boys would let me be marking it. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely agree, agree with that. 
Um, so I hope that listeners listen to that can realise that there is there is a better way to to, to mark, and you don't need to. Yeah, and 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 something that um, I also wanted to do by writing the book isn't necessarily just focus on uh, individual classroom teachers because I understand that policies and and uh, rules at certain schools don't allow you to to go about um, maybe live marking in that particular way because you have to give a certain amount of feedback every couple of weeks but it's about um, having a dialogue with uh, your middle leaders or your senior leaders and, and ensuring that they understand the impact of different approaches and, and how important it is it's not about saying what we're doing is wrong it's about saying what we're doing could be improved could we look at using something different and i don't want um to, to imply in any way that you can just sort of blanket drop this in and it's just a really easy thing to do it can be very difficult to persuade people to change practice especially um if, if you've got leaders who aren't kind of as, as, as happy to instigate change but it is about driving these things forward and, and the book kind of in a lot of ways was written to give people that springboard to be able to say look this has actually been written here this is the idea behind it um you know these are the theories and the ideas this is why it's important and, and hopefully gives them a little bit of empowerment around changing the department practice as well as individual practice certainly thank you very much for for giving us giving us that empowerment through, through, through what you <laughs> shared um also with that you, you talk a lot about whole class feedback so how do you use whole class feedback Abby? it's it's whole class feedback's an interesting one it's, it's been around for well a long time now i mean it, i don't know what seven or eight years ago swinging around and it started disappeared for a short while um and and, it, and it's come back and we've been using it now for three three years across the school uh, so every single department in the school uses uh, whole class feedback in the same way we use the same sheet to ensure consistency the students fill it in in the same way um the expectation is exactly the same across subject and whole class feedback is something that um, massively reduces workload and i personally think uh, it has a place for in, in every single classroom that there are some that will argue obviously that individualized feedback is of the utmost importance and i do not disagree in any way and that is what the live marking gives you that individual kind of like i've looked at that individual child's book and i know their individual need the whole class feedback is is a is a mechanism to ensure that you're not just writing the same comment in books over and over and over again so whole class feedback um for me needs to have some level of praise in it so it needs to it needs to have some level of kind of like celebration of work um but as with any kind of praise that praise needs to be specific so um giving praise for just saying well done is, is one thing, but actually what we need to do is ensure that we're, we're saying what the praise is for. So is it for a particularly good presentation? Is it for particularly sophisticated vocabulary use? Whatever. Um, but it's, it's about kind of celebrating those, those kind of good pieces of work in the class. Um, also, there needs to be some element of, of, of addressing of a misconception. Um, and of course, what we must do when we are addressing a misconception isn't just highlight the misconception, it's to actually teach the misconception as well. So with whole class feedback, the, the pretty sheets that you see on Twitter and all those other bits and bobs are really good, but actually it's not the sheet that does the work, it's the teacher that does the work. So it's about then ensuring that you teach the misconception to ensure that students don't uh, keep having the same misconception or making the same error. Um, and I think there needs to be kind of a differentiation between misconception and error on the whole class feedback sheet because some students will get things wrong and some students will not understand things. But I think um, the important thing is that the teacher teaches 
the students to avoid uh, either the misconception or the error um, reoccurring. And obviously through that, you then need to then test again to see whether or not the students have overcome the misconception. So um, along with the misconception being highlighted, they need to have some opportunity or an activity to show that they've, um, they've overcome it. You're also going to have those students um, who didn't have the misconception in the first place, um, and we don't want to make it a, a fruitless exercise. So there needs to be some level of, of extension task on there that isn't just a, a, a mirroring of, of, of the misconception task. Uh, so that extension task allows for, that, uh, for those students who, who didn't have that original misconception to, to do it. You've also got a nice opportunity to pop some literacy on and we always get some keywords in. Um, they might be words that, um, I don't know, aren't spelled particularly well or aren't used particularly well. Um, the one that springs to mind for English, sorry to keep using English, but it just makes the most sense to me. Um, it implies and infers, for example, um, you know, those two words are words that students quite often get mixed up. Um, and by trying to use them and seem sophisticated, what they actually do is make it look like they haven't got a clue what they're doing. So to ensure that that, that clarity is there, that uh, whole class feedback's a great time to do that. But with anything literacy-based, there's no point in just giving them the words to write out three times. They need to be able to put it into sentence or put it into a context um, to ensure that they can apply it. And what that package gives you is kind of like an overall overarching blanket, right, everybody's on the same um, on, on the same level now with regards to that particular misconception and the big thing is ensuring that you link the live marking with the whole class feedback to ensure that you're not looking through the books so um, quite often um, when I'm working with trainees um, I'll encourage them to use a tracking sheet so when they're doing their uh, live marking they go around and they can just note down on a tracking sheet by tracking it, it might that sound really formal, but it can just be a post-it note, I don't care. They're just writing down what the common misconceptions are because then they've already filled in their whole class feedback sheet without having to look at the books again outside of the lesson. It's that concept of ensuring that you are aware and you are kind of like using the information that you're gathering in an effective way. What's the point of doing all that live marking? and not taking anything from it to then put back into the whole class. You know, if you've got a misconception, you might stop the whole class and do your whole class feedback during the lesson. Um, it doesn't have to be a terminal process at the end of a lesson at the start of another lesson, but it's about using the information you gather to ensure that students are progressing. Um, and again, it's just simple, but at the same time can save you hours of bookmarking. Um, Again, it doesn't have to be a flash sheet. It can just be something um, that you print out with four boxes on. As long as it's got the information on and it's got you and, and the expectation is the students fill it in a certain way, job done. Certainly, and, and, I, and I really like what you said about the, the, it's not the sheet that matters, it's the teacher mm. that needs to do the work. I absolutely love that. And I like how you then merge that together with the live marking and, and, and all those strategies, they're really just, they're so knitted together that if you can do the live marking really well, then you can do the whole class feedback really well. And as you say, you can do it mid-lesson or on to the next lesson. So that's wonder, wonderful strategies. It's, it's a sequential process as well. I, like, I, I talk about it because I do it. But at the same time, you can't just go in and say, right, I'm going to do all this live marking and then we do whole class feedback. It's about staging yourself and testing the things out that work for you and then ensuring that you can do those in your lessons manageably and not, um, not overwhelming yourself as well. Certainly. Thank you very, very much. And, and, and great, great advice there. Um, questioning, you're right, is an absolute art. And, and I wholeheartedly agree with, with you on that. 
So how do we improve our questioning and what questioning strategies would you recommend to those of us who, who want to teach smarter? I think um, questioning is a really tough one with regard to uh, how you get better at it. And, and I think there's always two strands with questioning. You've got your pedagogy strand, which is your approach to questioning, of course. And then you've got your subject knowledge strand, um, which is the fuel for the car, really. If, if you don't have the subject knowledge, you're not able to ask questions to a depth that will challenge. Um, and that's where your subject specialism comes in. But from a pedagogical point of view, um, I'm a key proponent of the concept of cold call questioning. Um, it heightens participation ratio, it heightens thinking ratio. Um, when used effectively, I think it's a really, really important tool. But again, it's a personal thing, and, and that's what I like using in my classroom. It doesn't matter if you use hands up or cold call, as long as you you know, use it for the reasoning that works for you, that's all that matters. But it's about varying your questioning approaches and making sure that, as well as checking for understanding, you're also building that level of complexity through your questioning. So I think quite often we assume that we just question to check if students have learned some stuff. And, and yeah, in the first instance we do, but we need to ensure that we also use hinge questions to ensure that uh, students have understood enough to, to progress to the next phase of learning. We need to ensure we're using different types of Socratic questioning and stretch questioning to make sure that we can challenge those who, uh, who, who want to be challenged, but also need to be challenged. And I think questioning is a real, real tough one to get better at. Um, and like I said, it does depend heavily on your subject knowledge. I couldn't question you on science, even though pedagogically I know a fair amount about um, questioning because I don't have anything that I can um, kind of tangibly or explicitly say to you about science because last time I did it was GCSE. But when it comes to English, I can ask significantly complex questions off just out of my head because that's something that I'm used to doing. But then it does also come down to practice and you might know loads but actually find it very difficult to respond to how students respond to you and when i say that questioning is an art i mean that it's something that takes a long long time to master if you truly do ever master it at all um you, you become more confident at it and you become better at it but it's something that i always think to myself i could have asked that a bit better or i could have phrased that a bit better um even after all this time and however many thousands or hundreds of thousands of questions I've asked, I still think to myself, oh, that maybe wasn't quite as clear as it could have been. Um, but my main thing with questioning is always I want to avoid any opting out. Um, it, you know, it can be a real killer of, of momentum in a lesson when students just refuse to respond or just go, don't know. And it's soul destroying as well, especially when you've put all that effort in. You come up with a brilliant question. And, uh, you know, I've seen my trainees do it, um, that, that you can see that they're pre thought about their questions and they've asked their little killer question that they're like yes come on this is going to be the big one and the kids just look at them blankly and go don't know and they go right well, where do I go from here and, and it's about building those strategies as well like making sure you're able to break down uh, the questions to, to allow access but also building the expectations around questions to, to make sure the students know you're not going to stop until you get some kind of response um, it's building that confidence isn't it links back to the talk as well I suppose um, have them having the confidence to be able to respond uh, comes from their ability to talk doesn't it definitely because if as we said earlier if, if you teach them how you want them to talk and how you want them to use full sentences it then gives them the confidence to, to answer your questions and when they are cold called they have that confidence to answer in the way full sentences which you want them to like how yeah. it's all, like how it's all linked together I like how you split 
questioning there into into two strands essentially the the subject knowledge strand and the pedagogical knowledge because as you say you could you could know all the pedagogy in the world but if you know nothing about chemistry then you'll struggle to ask and ask yeah. questions you, you can't use your cold call or no opt out in in, in in chemistry so you the subject knowledge is so important so thank you so much for highlighting that um got one more question for you um before we move on to what I call my, my final three questions, which are the questions I ask, ask every guest. And you mentioned it right at the start. How important is it that, that we are reflective as teachers? I think reflection really is at the heart of improvement. And if we're not reflecting, then quite often we'll end up standing still and that can become quite demotivating. Uh, there's a lot happening at the moment and um, there's a lot of pressure on teachers but actually reflecting on your practice is something that we should be doing regardless of what's happening around us. And I think from a, from a personal progression perspective, if you're looking at what you're doing and thinking, how could I do that better? That's showing that you're giving the most you can give to the students. If you're saying, nah, I think I'm, I'm fine where I am. That's great. But also it kind of implies a, a sense of, uh, you know being slightly stagnant with your practice and, and I'm not saying that we always need to be constantly improving but it's that strive for um, improvement in your practice for the students but also um, for yourself as well to keep yourself challenged and I think although we do have an issue around retention because of workload which again is one of the reasons I wrote the book we also have um, an issue with retention around motivation as well and, and I think people can quite quickly get lost in teaching it can become a very very lonely place even though you're around people a lot um, you know you see people progressing you see people getting promotions and uh, it can be quite you know, in, in some ways quite depressing if you, you're not also getting that. And by reflecting, you're constantly keeping yourself fresh and you're keeping yourself engaged. And that can be such a valuable tool with regard to um, keeping you in teaching. I feel like we've lost so many teachers over the years to other professions because they've not maybe been shown how they can progress themselves as opposed to just progress their positions. Um, I think that a title counts for very little um, when it comes down to it, really. It's it's more to do with your ability to ensure that you're kind of happy in yourself um, and, and you're improving yourself. So, yeah, I think reflective uh, practices is a huge, huge part of teaching. And the more reflective we are, um, the, the, the happier we are quite often as well. Certainly, and I like how you, you started that by saying that reflection is, is at the heart of improvement. And if we're reflecting and we're constantly improving, then we're going to get eat better and better. And we're and the better we are, the better it is for the young people that we teach. Mm -hmm. A wonderful note to finish the, 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 the podcast interview on. Um, so before we move on to the final three, Adam, can you please share with, with the listeners where they can buy Teach Smarter? Uh, where they can connect with you or on social media and find out a little bit more about you. Um, yeah, so you can get Teach Smarter uh, direct from the publisher from Ratledge or you can get it from um, Amazon, obviously, as you can get everything from Amazon, seemingly. Um, and uh, on Twitter, my handle is Teach Mr. Riches. Um, and well, most of the time I'm just tweet about random things that might save you some time, but um, I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has about the book or um, any questions that anybody has off anything I've said tonight. Hopefully I'm not upset anybody or said anything controversial, but um, like I say, I'm, I'm always happy to interact and, and share ideas as well. Um, and, and obviously give examples of some of the things I've spoken about. And I think that's really important. Um, it's, it's easy, isn't it, to talk about things, but to, to show examples of things is, is something else. Um, and I'm always happy to do that. 
to actually to, to, to live your talk is, is so, so important. So definitely follow Adam on Twitter if you want to see, see him live out what he's, what he's spoken about today. Um, so we're on the final three. These are the questions that, that I ask every guest on the podcast. And the first one to you is, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? I don't want to be. I don't want to be like cliched, but I do genuinely think Rosenstein's principles of instruction have had an incredible impact. Um, but randomly, there's 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 one other. There's a dissertation. It was an unpublished dissertation that I read on collective efficacy and the importance of um, people buying into a shared goal. And um, it's it's actually cited, I, I think, by Hattie um, in some of his research as well. It's written by um, a scholar called Els um, E E. L-L-E-S, I think it is, um, and it's 2011. It, it's one of the most interesting dissertations I've ever read um, about, about the power of, of collective efficacy and actually it's shaped a lot of the leadership stuff that I've, I've done and a lot of the leadership um, things that I've put in place as well. So obviously I've got the typical rose and shine. It did have a huge impact, I can't lie. But also that that paper from Els is, is insane. Um, it was full of things that I just hadn't ever even really considered before. That blew my mind, to be fair. That's brilliant. I've told Curveball mentioning that, mentioning that dissertation. So thank you very much for that contribution. Um, the second question is, if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? It would be, don't worry too much. I think something we'll guilty of is worrying too much, and it, whether it be implementing a new strategy, whether or not it be that you're slightly after the time you normally arrive at school one day, I just think you need to keep things in perspective and just don't worry too much. Everything's fixable. Well, most things, but yeah, everything's fixable. <laughs> Definitely, I, I totally agree with that. And, and my final one is... What do you think most gets in the way of just great teaching in our classrooms? Uh, workload. And I just think reducing your workload is going to massively increase great teaching, um, whether that be through marking, whether that be through planning, whether or not that's through something totally different. Um, it's about re readdressing the balance to ensure that great teaching is allowed to take place. And we touched on it before. Um, why would I be spending time doing a passive exercise when I could actually be using that time to impact actual learning in the classroom? Brilliant. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to end and sums up everything that we've been talking about and sums up the, the, the thesis essentially to your book. So all I've got left to say is to, is thank you so, so much for, for affording me your time and being a, a wonderful guest on the Becoming Educated podcast. Thank you so much, mate. It's nice to talk. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.